Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Many mic issues today on my part, not on Dan's part, on my part. The last two weeks, we looked at the characteristics of gospel spirituality and You could say that this is the final mark of that spirituality. Paul writes in verse 10, so then, and that's another word for therefore, which some of your translations in the NIV or different translations of the Bible might have. And therefore always means in conclusion. And what is this conclusion? The conclusion is verse 10. Let us do good to everyone. When I was thinking about that verse and that phrase, I was just trying to think through what's a good word to describe that. And the word that I came up with was generosity. Like Paul is telling us we need to be a generous people. But to be a generous person truly in heart means you don't show favorites, at least according to this verse. There is no, I will do good to you if... First, you do good to me. The world operates that way, and the thinking is that that's what a true generous person is, but that's not, at least not a relentlessly generous person, according to Paul. And so we're going to look at three aspects of this relentless generosity. First, verses 7 through 8 describes a generous reality. And then second is verse 9, a generous fortitude. And then third in verse 10, a generous grace. So again, let's read verses 7 through 8 and this generous reality. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I think when we think about a generous person, what comes to mind is the word that we often use to describe someone generically is a nice person, someone who smiles a lot, whom you would deem to be friendly. But one thing we know for certain is that you can be um, smiling but have a heart of disdain towards a person. You could be antagonistic. You could have a lot of animosity behind the smile. Generosity is not something that's seen so easily. Instead, the Bible here shows us that the truly biblically generous person has truth at the core of their being, that they are generous not because they feel generous, but because they know a truth, and that truth exists all throughout Paul's moving, but you love. You don't always feel kind, but we show kindness. That's from a truth Again, it's not because we feel it, we know it to be true. And very similarly, Paul uses this same idea, and to the way that he explains it is by using an agricultural metaphor. That is to say, for whatever one sows, that he will reap. 
So for those of you who have a vegetable garden and if you have tomato seed and if you plant that tomato seed and water it and wait for it to grow, what's not going to show up is cucumbers. That's not how it works. That's not how God has designed agriculture and planting. Whatever you sow, you will reap. So if you have a smile, but in your heart there's disdain, you won't suddenly see kindness flow out of it. Paul is saying that behind the smile, the heart will always reveal itself eventually in the end. For example, let's say you show and exhibit kindness to a person, at least verbally or expressively, but in your heart of hearts, there's hatred, antagonism, disdain towards that person. But you might think to yourself, well, I only feel this towards that person alone. Everyone else I really love. But our heart does not work that way. Sin doesn't work that way. I mean, in many ways, a great metaphor of this is a cancerous cell. As that cancerous cell attacks a healthy cell, it doesn't just attack that one cell and then remain simply as is. No, it starts attacking that cell and it starts multiplying and metastasizing and it becomes something that takes over an organ. And the danger about cancer is that it goes from stage one to stage four. It not only stays at one lymph node, it transfers throughout the whole body attacking the liver or the brain. And so what initially seems, well, it's just one cell. It really doesn't do that much damage. But again, all you need to know is someone, if you have a loved one who has suffered from cancer, you know that's not how it works. Well, spiritually speaking, it's the same. If you have anger towards a person, hatred, animosity, and regardless of how much you try to hide it, you might be able to hide it for a moment, but eventually as you age, as you experience life, what you'll find is that your heart grows hard, not just towards that one person, but towards the next person who doesn't do things your way. And then the next person, and slowly we start cutting off relationships. And then very typically, that senior, that elder, that person who is aged, they're just alone. And they don't want to spend time with anyone. No one wants to spend time with that person because it has metastasized. That heart has grown into a heart, not of generosity, but of hatred and animosity. And no smile and no sense of niceness can ever get rid of that. Notice also that Paul describes what's happening here by this first startling phrase, do not be deceived. That should bring us back to last week's message where we looked at verse 3 and we saw in it these words, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So he's using this same idea of deception very rapidly in succession to make a point. And the point is this, when we think we are something, when in actuality we're all really nothing, we're deceiving ourselves. And here again, Paul's saying it's a self-deception. That is to say that we're deceiving ourselves if we think that what we are experiencing towards one person doesn't impact all of our relationships and all of our heart isn't being in some way impacted. The way that I want to use this illustration is this idea of the it's only self-deception. It's only one image on a screen. 
It's only one small white lie. It's only borrowing. It's not really stealing. It's only one missed Sunday of worship away from God's people. It's only a joke, and I didn't mean to hurt anyone. That it's only, what it does, it tries to minimize sin, and it classifies sin as little sins. So there's little sins that I commit, which I, should des- I deserve grace for, and the big sins that everyone else commits, and they're really bad ones. So the little sins is something that I'm righteous over because it's not bad relative to somebody else. Paul is telling us here that when we do that, we are deceiving ourselves. And not only are we deceiving ourselves, he goes, takes it one step further. He says we're mocking God when we do that. Because here's what we're saying. We're saying that we're not really that bad. And all the things that God says in his word that says we are rebelling against him when we do such things, we're saying he doesn't notice, he doesn't see, he doesn't care. They're not that bad at all. And I've determined what is right and wrong, what is bad and not bad. As if to say that what God says is inconsistent with himself. Now that's really the ultimate of a mocking of God, that there is no accountability to the things that I say and do. And all you need to do is perhaps go to a baseball game or go to work and you hear God's name taken in vain. Maybe you've done that yourself. And the reason why we can do that and hear that so freely is because we don't think there's a consequence to that. There really is no such thing as God. So to use his name as a swear word is no big deal at all. It's no different than saying anything else. And God doesn't see. If he does, he's impotent. He's, he has no power and he's not going to do anything about it at all. The refusal to believe that there is a consequence to our words, our thoughts, our actions is the idea of saying, God, you are nothing. And that is a mockery of God. The psalmist describes what this mockery looks like in Psalm 94. He says this, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? The Lord knows the thoughts of men that they are but a breath. And if you look at that last line of the psalmist, he's telling us, Why this is so foolish to think that God does not see? Because our lives are but a breath. There will come a day, and you think it's a long way off. Even if you're a youth, even if you're a teenager, you think death is way out there. But speak to anyone who is older, and you realize, you know, time goes so fast. It does. And it's but a breath. And one day you will face the judge and you do not want to face him as a consuming fire judge who is going to, has the power, as Jesus says, to cast you into hell. And so when we make a mockery of God by saying, God, you don't care, you have no power, you're impotent, I can say whatever I want, think whatever I want, do whatever I want, and it has no consequence to my life at all, oh, be forewarned. It's a dangerous place. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Your generosity 
stands on that bedrock truth. Because you know that God is going to hold you accountable to your heart of generosity. And that's why you're generous. That's why he, Paul says, let us good, do good to everyone. Because God will not be mocked. Do not deceive yourselves. I tell you that that is a far greater power to be generous than simply being nice. Because you might be thinking, well, but that sounds so fake. I mean, if you have to be generous because God is someone who is going to hold you to that and hold you accountable to that, isn't that fake? Well, no, I don't think so. I actually think that the reality of knowing of all the nature and character of God that empowers you out to actually be generous to others, it's going to sustain you to be generous versus the nice smile, the, the niceness of a person who is dependent on the niceness of the other person. That will not last. That will, not, that will only last as long as the other person is friendly and nice. But once they are mean, once they are difficult, you will have a very difficult time in being generous. You see, biblical generosity is not contingent at all on the person you're being generous to. The only contingency is towards God. And God is saying, this is who I am. This is my character and this is my nature. Therefore, let us do good to everyone. So generosity, this generosity stands on truth. And truth is the greatest power of all. It dispels all these falsities. It gives us a path to live this life in faith. Not just this life, but eternally. And this person, according to Paul, is the one who, as he says, sows in the Spirit. Which is a very similar phrase to the idea of keeping in step with the Spirit we saw earlier. And then also we saw about the fruit of the Spirit. They're all saying the same thing. That there is going to be this life of faith that leads to blessing delight, joy, eternally, forever and ever. And you know, when you think about cash or any earthly good, any, anything that we can obtain in this world, any relationship, what is it that we really want? Do we really care that much? Let's say if I had a $100 bill with Benjamin Franklin on it, does that piece of paper really give us that much joy? Or is it what I can do with that? What if the promise of the Lord is whatever that piece of paper will bring, I will increase it infinite fold. I won't give you the paper. I'll give you the, 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 what, is, what you're seeking ultimately behind it, which that piece of paper will never give you. And that's what eternal life with him is. It's the full satisfaction of what your heart ultimately longs for and so God is never there saying, I'm going to, I'm there to make your life miserable and sacrifice everything so you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. No, it's to say, I am here, trust me, I will give you everything far more than a spouse can give you, money can give you, children can give you, work can give you. All of that is but a shadow of what is to come. That is why we're generous. We know this to be true. And when we have this, then we start pursuing wanting to be good to everyone. Now, here's the challenge. That can grow wearisome, which is why we need the next characteristic, generous fortitude, verse 9. 
And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Because we're confident in God's blessing us, we know that's going to happen. We can be generous then with our time, our resources, our efforts. We know, we sang about it, there's a great reward. And the reward, again, is not a big mansion or all this money or all these different relationships. The reward is what those things actually give us, which is the ultimate joy and delight and satisfaction as we were created to be in him. And Paul is telling us that if this is true, then we press on to be generous towards others. But here's the challenge. Whenever Paul says, the Apostle Paul, when he says, and let us not grow weary in doing good, you know why he says that? Because he knows we're going to grow weary in doing good. It's just our nature. Whenever he tells us, hey, really fight this, it's because you're going to feel this way. And the reason we grow weary in doing good to everyone is because people are difficult. They're sinners, just like you, just like me. And because we're all sinners, because we all have that in our soul still, even if you're in Christ, you still are struggling and battling sin. So there's still a bout of self-centeredness. There's still a bout of envy and jealousy and, and all of that that is corroding our souls. And so therefore, when we try to be generous, it, it grows tiresome. Last week, I shared about my drive in, my drive in New Jersey. And uh, I remember I was driving in the lane and there was a long wait off the exit into traffic and there was a, a merge. And in New Jersey, this happens all the time, New York and New Jersey, is that they, people come up to the very end to cut you off. Remember that? When I finally get to my spot, this guy comes in really close and I'm so wanting to not let him in, but I let him in. Well, guess what happened? I didn't say the second part of the story. See, I always want a thanks, thanks wave. Anyone really want a thank wave when you do something like that? What happens when they don't give a thank wave? Ugh, more so, you get more frustrated. So frustrating. It's not just that you let them in. They didn't give you a thanks. Or maybe you cook a really great dinner and you have guests. They come, they eat. They don't say anything. They don't say this is good. They leave. They don't say thank you. They didn't bring a gift. <laughs> and you just, they leave and instinct is, I'm never inviting them over again, you know, ever. It's, you encourage someone, you bless someone, they never say thanks. It, what, what happens? You know what happens? We grow weary in doing well. We start saying, no more. I'm not doing that again. I'm being taken advantage of. I refuse. And what happens is that we think that makes no impact. It's just towards that person. Remember the whole cancer illustration. I only feel this way towards that person. No, that's not how it works. Slowly I start thinking, I'm not going to let anyone take advantage of me again. You know, I'm not. And so we decide in our hearts that I'm just going to be less generous. It's just easier. Then I won't be hurt. And the thinking of as long as I won't be hurt, so slowly we start closing our heart. We harden it. And then we don't feel anymore. And then we cut off relationships. And then you grow old and you have nobody around you. 
Again, if, if you have elderly parents, elderly friends, and you see they're all alone, and they're living in their own world of self-glorification, know that that happened at a very young age. It does, it's not something that just happens. And it's happening to you, whether you realize it or not. Because we do grow weary in doing well. We do grow weary in being good to everyone. And the reason we grow weary in doing good to everyone is not because people are letting us down, because they always will. It's because we have forgotten that God has been good to us. We've forgotten the why I have to be generous. And this is exactly why generosity of spirit, true biblical generosity, does not come because others are good to you. You know, you have your friends. Most of your friends are going to be generally pretty good to you. And so to be good to them, it's, it's it, I mean, granted, they might let you down every once in a while, but generally it's not that difficult to be generous to them. But to be generous to someone who is standoffish, is different, a little odd, who doesn't, can't pay you back, that's what we're talking about here. It's to see beyond ourselves. And it's to recognize that God does amazing things, not because of who's showing up, or how they're paying you back, but simply because God already has, has done a tremendous work in your life. So if we're holding morning prayer and two people show up, my instinct is to think, well, this is a waste of time because there's only two people or there's only one other person. So why pray? Well, that really, again, discounts the idea of who is it that we're worshiping? And why are we doing what we're doing? Just so that people can have make that much of a difference in my life per se, or is it that I'm looking to Christ? If I'm leading a study, you're having a small group and only one person shows up, is it, is it still worth it to actually study scripture together? If we think to ourselves that numbers makes, is what validates us, then we have a very small view of God. I also want to say this, is that for those of you who are serving in gospel train or uh, our children's ministry or access youth ministry, get ready for this. You're not going to see much fruit. I know that sounds so discouraging, doesn't it? You're not going to see much fruit. You know, they're not going to come up to you after that lesson and have a group of people come. You did such a great job. Your, your teaching was so awesome. I loved it so much. I'm forever changed in Christ. I love Jesus all the more. I'm sorry, six-year-old is not going to do that. They're just going to give you that glassy-eyed look and say, can I have some more food? Can I have some snacks? The youth, they're going to come and eat up all the pizza and then sit there and maybe once in a while you see their glassy eye, you know, falling back to sleep. It's just how it is sometimes, right? And when you see that as a leader, as a mentor, it's so discouraging. It can be, you know, and sometimes you might be thinking, why am I doing this? It's not even making a difference in these kids' lives. I was that youth kid. I grew up in the church. And so many of my youth pastors and when I was in children's, but here's the thing. I remember so many of the things they said, even though when I was a kid, 
almost don't want to say this story, but I will share it. When I was a kid, I would take my offering money that my mom gave me, and during children, children's ministry, I'd take it, go outside, and buy, buy ice cream and baseball cards with it. Actually, I bought baseball cards with it, and I would run out with my one other friend, and we did this every Sunday. And it was, that is the grace of God, right? That's God's grace. Even in the midst of that, I remembered what my children's ministry teacher said. And about four to five months ago, I called my youth pastor. And I called him and I said, I just want to thank you for the many, many different ways you served me and showed me Christ and invested in me, didn't give up on me. And the impact, so he's now about six years older than me. And, you know, here I am talking about my high school years with him. First of all, I really want to encourage you, if you've been blessed by a children's pastor or someone who, a children's small group leader or a youth pastor, call them up, send them an email and say, thank you so much for blessing me. This is where I am today. But know this is that the fruitfulness of that is not wasted. What you reap, you will sow. But sometimes it takes a long time to see the fruit. And when you're trusting in Christ, to, to, you just trust him. You're not looking for the fruitfulness so that they're going to look, pat you on the back and do what I did. Sometimes that won't happen. But that's okay because you know the Lord is sovereign. And he's taking that and he's using it. I want to share with you the story that uh, Pastor Phil Riken shares about the conversion of a man named Luke Short. At 103 years old, he came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Luke Short was sitting under a tree when he happened to remember a sermon that was preached once by the famous Puritan pastor, John Flavel, in 1691. And as he was recalling, just by the Holy Spirit's sovereignty, at 103 years old, he recalled that sermon, and right at that moment, he asked the Lord to forgive his sins through Jesus Christ. Luke Short lived three more years later, and then he died. And on his gravestone was this inscription, Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years old, who died according to nature, aged 106 years old. But here's the remarkable part of the story. The sermon that Luke Short remembered had been preached by John Flavel 85 years before. Almost one century before God sovereignly by his spirit put into his heart a message of the gospel. And he was saved at 103 years old. Who amongst us can say that God cannot do the work of saving? But what we have the responsibility to do in our generosity is to plant seeds and to trust that God is going to take that and use that for his glory. So when you see the glassy-eyed youth sleeping, when you see that person who just seems disinterested, when you see the child who is there rambunctious and even rebellious and doing evil things like taking their offering money and going buy baseball cards with it, you know, know that our God takes that generous spirit. He who reaps, the spirit will sow, will do the work because he is a generous God. And that's actually the third characteristic, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If you look at that verse, 
There's a really important word there, and actually the word that I like is the word everyone. Everyone means everyone. It means people who are kind, but people who are mean. It means people who are really on the ball or people who are oddballs. People who really are good to you and people who are not so good to you. Everyone is everyone. Now, this also includes, obviously, especially those who are in the faith, who are the church. But even more so, Paul doesn't just let us stay with the church. He says everyone. I mean, we should do it in the church, but we should do it to everyone. Why? Why should we do this to everyone? Because God has been generous with everyone. Remember that famous verse, John 3.16, that so many of us have memorized. Even if you've never been to church before, you probably know John 3.16 or have heard of it or seen it at football games on a sign. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he was generous by giving his only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Or here's a really great generous verse, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What Paul is saying is, how can we not be good to everyone, especially when God has been so good to everyone? He's been generous with me and you. He has not withheld even his own son. We withhold a few trinkets from God. Wouldn't surely we would withhold our own son and daughter. But God did not withhold his own son so that he could be generous with every one of us. And that is the power and fuel of our generosity. If that doesn't get you to be generous of spirit, nothing will. Nothing will. Pastor Donald Barnhouse tells a story of a person empowered to be generous because God was generous with her. A couple came to him once in counseling where the man told his wife of his sexual past and his fear that those sins would enslave him and eventually destroy their marriage. They had just newly married. And she responded with a letter, um, reading it out loud because she had a hard time just composing those words to her husband. This is what she wrote to her husband. John, I want you to understand something. I know my Bible well, and therefore I know the subtlety of sin and the devices of sin working in the human heart. I know you are a thoroughly converted man, John, but I know that you still have an old nature and that you are not yet as fully instructed in the ways of God as you soon will be. The devil will do all he can to wreck your Christian life. And he will see to it that temptations of every kind will be put in your way. The day might come, please God, that it never shall. But the day might come when you will succumb to temptation and fall into sin. Immediately, the devil will tell you that it is no use trying, that you might as well continue on in sin, and that above all, you are not to tell me because it will hurt me. But John, I want you to know that here in my arms is your home. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new nature. And I want you to come. I want you to know there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may ever come into your life. And her husband, after hearing those words, said, My God, 
If anything could ever keep a man straight, that would be it. You know, the law is not going to keep us straight. It's going to not keep us pure, have a right heart, be generous of spirit. The law won't. I can command it, but in and of itself will fall and will falter. But it is the power of the gospel, the generous, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God, that fuels our generosity, that fuels the generosity of such a woman who can write, before you even sin, I want you to know that I will already forgive you. That takes you understanding generosity, you knowing that you were in that place too. And when you understand that, then generosity flows. And that generosity, is, it's, it's made of steel. It's not something that is hidden behind a smile and just nice words. It, is, it has fortitude. It is perseverant. It is tough. It is strong. It persists. It refuses to give up. And it is relentless. Never ends. The only way this is possible is by remembering that our God loved you that way. He is relentless in his generosity towards you. May you never forget that. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the wondrous truth that your steadfast love is persistent despite us while we were still sinners, while we are still sinning, Christ, you died for us. And Holy Spirit, you sanctify us. This act of grace that we are about to take part in shows us very visibly how you have been so generous to us. May we respond by being good to everyone because you have been so good to us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.